Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Laura Duggan with West Austin Properties in Austin, Texas. She closed 39 transactions with a total sales volume of $19 million in her best year. Her average sales price was $484,000, of which 36% were buyers and 64% were sellers. She operates a team with three members, one agent partner, one chief operating officer, and one team leader. Laura Duggan is the team leader of West Austin Properties. She's been an agent for 34 years and sold homes in five decades. She works the Metro Austin market. This year, her average price is $794,000. In this call, Laura talks about increasing your average sales price into the top 5% in your market earning larger professional service fees, becoming a luxury home agent, how to find luxury home buyers and sellers, what to say at open houses to connect with visitors and get contact information, networking with other high-end luxury service providers, producing webinars to generate leads, how to market a luxury home for a fast sale at top dollar, Utilizing single property websites. Building your luxury home team of vendors and service providers. Preventing low appraisals. Working with your spouse. Team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Laura. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Laura, it's great to have you. Laura, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, it's hard to remember back that far, <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually, I, uh, I entered the real estate business in uh, 1979. I was, uh, at the time, a senior in college, and my dad, who had had a very successful career in the insurance business, wanted to open a real estate company, and he had not been in school for many years, so he said, come take the classes with me. And uh, and let's do this together. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. So I did my student teaching during the day, and at night I went to classes and uh, in real estate at the Austin Board of Realtors and got my real estate license, and I was hooked. So even though I taught school for five years and, and actually went on to get my administrative certification so I could be a principal, I also sold real estate at the same time and really loved it. And then... I met and married my fabulous husband, Brad, and uh, he was in a related educational field. He was the executive director of the Elementary School Principals Association, so I decided to 
go into real estate full-time, and instead of teaching students English, which is what I had been doing, I just started teaching buyers and sellers how to buy and sell homes. So that's how I got in. Why did you decide to go down the real estate path rather than the education path? I, I just really loved working with people. I mean, in education, unfortunately, you can't choose your students. And in real estate, you can choose your students, and you should. <laughs> <laughs> you should absolutely choose those that you want to work with. And so I intentionally uh, transferred my skill set. Uh, I approached everything in the real estate business like I did a teacher. I prepared in the same way. I did planning uh, and putting together presentations. Everything was very much as I would have done it in my English class with my students. And I just loved it. I really had a passion for working with those who were so eager and so appreciative. To me, it was like putting together big puzzles. And each client represented a new puzzle. And uh, there was just so much gratification in the whole process. When you got started, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? Well, it was an interesting start because my dad never wanted to work for another real estate company. And, you know, you have to work for another real estate company when you get your license. You have to work in an office with someone who's a broker for a certain number of years before you can become a broker. Well, dad had always run his own business and he just didn't like the idea of going to work for another company. So he said, you know what, we're going to start our own company. We're going to call it West Austin Properties because the west side of town is the most beautiful side of town. It's got the hills, the lakes, the rivers. And uh, what we'll do is we'll just go hire a broker. So instead of a broker hiring us, we went out and hired a broker to, <laughs> to run the company, but we owned it. And um, that has always been an important and an intentional decision because we could control everything about the company, the branding, the training, where we wanted to put our focus. And like I said, my dad was a brilliant salesperson. And it worked out really, really well. We, we hired our own mentor. And you're still running West Austin Properties. Yes, um, I bought it for my dad in 1992 and when dad retired. And I, I've run the company just about every way you can run it. I've had a large number of agents and I've had a small group. And actually, I prefer a very small group of team members, more like a mentor-mentee type relationship. I find when you have a large group, it's much harder to manage. You spend a lot more time managing people and doing uh, a lot less of the things that you really love to do. And in my case, it was buying and selling with clients. I really love the brokerage part of the business. Even though I enjoyed the management too. I think having a small team has really suited my lifestyle best. Sure. Now you've been doing this a while. I was trying to add up the years. How many years has it been? 34 years. I've done real estate in five different decades. I know it's kind of hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I got started, we barely had an MLS. We had no computers. Uh, we had no lockboxes and, uh, 
every piece of technology that came along, I just embraced with open arms and love and made it work for me. And, you know, now, wow, we have so many great tools at our disposal that are free. It's just fantastic. It is amazing. Well, how many homes did you sell, you as an individual or with your team rather than your company, how many homes did you sell in your best year? We sold 39 homes, almost $19 million, and I'm going to have my best year this year. It's kind of been the perfect storm this year. Everything has just lined up beautifully. We've got uh, real high demand, increasing prices. The lender situation is so much better than it was. We've got pent-up demand, multiple offers. It's, it's going to be a great year. Fantastic. Now, you've been, you've been intentionally raising your average price. What's your average price this year? Let's see. Our average price this year so far is seven ninety four. And let me say something about about average price and statistics and where you focus your business. Because you have to study the market to see where it is if you want to do the best business. And we every year, every quarter actually, we look at the market, we look at where the market has been and where it is going so that we can focus our prospecting and um, our, our efforts in those areas and price ranges that are actually selling. So as an example of that, we've done market reports since about 2006. That, 2006 and seven were awesome years in Austin. Things were ticking, people were moving in. It, it feels a lot like 2006 now. We've just got tremendous influx of people and a lot of demand. And so in 2008, things started to slow down, and we could see it really before. I mean, intuitively, we knew it was happening. But because we do these market reports, we could see uh, that things were staying on the market longer, over three, 400,000. And by the end of 2008, there were 500 homes on the market over a million dollars. And half of those were spec houses that builders had built. And so we knew that we had to change what we were doing and we intentionally refocused our efforts and started targeting that $300,000, $400,000 price range. About that same time, if you remember, the lenders shut down all the jumbo financing. So the million-dollar-plus, if we had stayed focusing on that stuff and just hoping and praying that it would sell at some point, we would have been in a real pickle. And a lot of people were. A lot of, a lot of big teams lost their business that were focusing in the high end. So we refocused, and our average sales price that year was 397000 So we still did some in the $500,000, $600,000 range because there were still cash buyers in the market that drove that. But because we looked at where the business was, we were able to continue to have good years even when other people were not having good years. And I think it's really important to look at the numbers in your market. And we break those numbers down every single month by price band. That is, we look at the number of sales 
in the one to two hundred thousand, two to three hundred, three to four hundred, and on up. And we look at the absorption rate. How many months does it take to sell the number of listings that are currently on the market so that we know where the business is going? And right now, the high end is starting to really sell. We're seeing multiple offers in the million to $3 million price range. So it was a natural this year to move our average sales price up. And that's why we're going to have our best year. We're going to do many fewer transactions, and that's my intention also because at this point in my life, I want to have a life. I want to travel and do some things. And so the market is affording us that luxury of doing fewer transactions. Um, I say that. I hope we're going to do fewer. (laughs) It seems like right now that that might not be the case. But at any rate... um, we could do fewer and and really end up with a spectacular year. That's fantastic. So you've got these these market reports. Is there anything else you're tracking? You said you're tracking the absorption rate. Uh, you're tracking everything in these $100,000 price bands. Is it just the absorption rate? Or is there anything else you track? No, we actually do a lot of tracking. And uh Agents can get an idea of how we put these market reports together if they want to. I have a a site called marketreportbuilder.com, and there's a a complete webinar there for agents if they want a little more information about how we do that. But we also track by zip code. So we track the sales by zip code, but you could track it in any way uh, that you could search in the MLS. So, for example, if you wanted to track it by elementary schools, you could do that. Or if you wanted to track it by subdivisions, you could do that. It's any searchable field in the MLS. I chose price bands because I wanted to see the big picture. Usually people who are searching for a home in, say, the four to $500,000 price range will look at multiple areas they may be in two different ends of our city, but because that's what they can afford, they're going to look at those neighborhoods that have those price homes in them. So we break it down by not only price band, but also by subdivision. And it's really, really helpful to give um, buyers and sellers the big picture. You know, when we do a CMA, we focus in on just a small area. Uh, just homes within usually a two-mile radius since that's what the appraisers use. But by doing the market reports, you get to see trends. You can you can really see when you can push that listing price up just a little bit or when you better pull it back because you can see month over month, and we, we do show that. We show them in line graphs where the market has been for the last, well, ever since we've been keeping track of it, so 2006, and they can see where the market is trending very easily. And they can even see the months that typically have the the highest number of sales. So not just the specifics of the month that you're in, but you can see what's happened in the past and pretty well predict what's going to happen in the future. That's really big information. And it's key when you're pricing a listing, and it's really good information. We do with our buyers a buyer consultation before we ever 
take a buyer out, we sit down with them and we go through, the very first thing that we go through with them is the market report to show them what, what our current market is doing and what they can expect during their buying experience. And we use the market report. And it sounds like the, the key metric in there is this absorption rate. How does someone calculate an absorption rate? What is the formula for that? Um, you take the number of listings that you have and the number and divide it by the number of sales and that's your absorption rate. So if you have, say, 12 listings and three of them sold, then you've got four months of supply. Okay. And so it's the number of listings sold in the prior 30 days or the prior month? That's exactly right. And then you end up with a number that's a, it's the number of months of inventory that you have. In your research you've done, what's the equilibrium number? Where, where is it kind of the changing of the tide between a buyer and a seller market? Is it three months or six months or 12 months? What's the magic number? That's a great question. Yeah, a balanced market is six months. So when you have six months of inventory, that's considered to be a balanced market. Anything above or below that changes it to a buyer's or a seller's market. Okay. So that's the key factor. In your research recently, where are you seeing just in your market there? What are your absorption rates? What are you seeing? So right now in Austin, we have a two-month supply of homes in the entire market. We have some areas that have a week of inventory. So you can imagine what happens in that type of a market. When you have such strong demand, it becomes a seller's market, and the sellers, can they get multiple offers, and prices tend to rise because there is heavy demand. We also see in that type of a market appraisal problems. <laughs> Because the values are increasing more quickly than uh, the statistics in the market that the appraisers use to to do their comparables. So it's an interesting time when you see so much happening. And, you know, real estate is so local that you can have one zip code just on fire and another zip code that maybe have five or six or seven or eight months of inventory. So recently in Austin, we had um, in the southwest part of town, you've got a neighborhood that had one month of inventory two months ago. Now it has a week of inventory. But within five miles of that area, there is a little uh, bedroom community, and it had 11 months of inventory. So... It's a very local type thing, and if you're not tracking by zip code or by neighborhood, then you could miss the, the whole picture. You mentioned that because of this type of market where things are starting to come back and move up quickly, appraisals are, are a problem because they're looking at past data. How do you overcome that challenge? Well, if I'm the listing agent... Then I've done a property-specific website just for my listing, and that is um, a website usually with the property address, say 123mainstreet.com, and in that property-specific website, I have put all of the data that a buyer or an appraiser would need to know to get the value. 
So I have all the photography. I've got the survey. I've got the subdivision uh, deed restrictions. I've got links to the school. I've got the tax record. I've got a whole list of all the things that the seller has done to improve the property. Um, And basically what I'm doing is I'm pre-selling this listing to the buyer by anticipating the questions that the buyer would have. This information is also key for an appraiser because they're not going to know, for example, that this house potentially has access to a boat dock where the one next door doesn't. And so if the appraiser is using comparables in the neighborhood and they miss the fact that your listing has a boat dock or access to a boat dock and the house next door that just sold does not, there is a variable there. And, you know, we we don't always as listing agents get to speak to the appraiser. So I do the website and I make sure that when the appraiser is scheduling the appointment to go look at the property, that they know that there's the website with all this information in it that they're going to need. So you try to leave nothing um, up to the appraiser to dig on their own. Another great way to do it is um, I always take the lockboxes off the property of my listings before an appraiser is going to come in that way they have to either meet the seller or they have to meet me at the property and you know you don't want to be pushy you want to be polite and and helpful and so making sure that they have that property website has been a, a big a big help especially with things like the survey in it and all types of information that can really help them understand the value of the property. And then giving them a list of properties that you know that have sold. Um, There's a big silent market in Austin too. And so there are sales that don't go through the MLS. And we, we try to have a great relationship with appraisers. Anytime they call us to ask us about a listing that we sold, we always do everything that we can to give the appraiser the information that they're looking for. And when we know of a private sale, we can also help with that information. Now, if I'm representing the buyer, I'm trying to do the same things. I'm getting a list from the seller of all the improvements that they've made in the property so that we can convey that information to the appraiser. One thing I will say, when I'm the listing agent and I have an offer come in on one of my listings, I want to interview not just the buyer's qualifications, but I want to know who the lender is and I want to know the process for the buyer obtaining that loan. Does that lender have in-house underwriting and processing? Because I think that's really important. Does the lender have a list of approved appraisers that they use or do they use the third-party system where they just turn in an order and the lowest bidder gets the appraisal. So all those things matter to me. I'm looking for the strength of the buyer, but I'm also looking at the strength of the lender, the loan officer, their process for getting the loan approved, and their appraisal process. Uh, That's smart. Very good. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about your approach to the market. Your approach seems to be, and you've even mentioned it, to sell fewer homes at higher prices. 
How did you come about that conclusion? How did you move into that territory? Why did you decide to go that direction rather than just being a, an average price agent? You know, it's funny because we can work so hard in our business. And if we are not intentional about what we are doing, then the business chooses us. So if we don't choose the area that we want to work in, we could be spending hours driving 30, 40, even an hour to service a listing. Well, that's not a good use of time. So intuitively, I knew that if we sold a $200,000 house, we were going to make X, but if we sold a million-dollar house, we were going to make X. And really, there was not a lot of difference in the amount of effort it took to make that sale. In fact, the larger the sale, sometimes the easier the transaction because you don't run into things like you know lender problems and you've got more cash buyers, you've got typically well-educated people who are used to business transactions, so you don't have to teach them a lot of the processes of business, and they appreciate the level of expertise that you have. One of the things that I really focus on is having a huge, great team around me, not team members. They are team members, but I don't employ them. But they're things like, you know, um, a high-end appraiser to help me with my uh, pricing. And just all types of people from real estate attorneys in the high-end. You you also see um, a number of clients that come from outside the country. So you need to have an immigration attorney uh, estate planning, having a great title company. We close in Austin through title companies, so we don't use closing attorneys. And so that title officer, the escrow officer that manages the closing is an all-important person in that team. And just having you know the right IT people to get you unstuck with your computers and that sort of thing. If I understand this correctly, you've you bumped up. You just told us you bumped up your average price to seven ninety four, and just to get perspective into your market, that's like in the top five percent of the prices in your area. Is that correct? Yes, definitely, especially on an average. I mean, because you know, you're you have only so many high end homes. But let me let me give you a little perspective about where we are right now. So we have a population in our area of 1,800,000 people. And we have uh, fewer than 5,000 listings in our market. And we have 10,000 real estate agents trying to sell fewer than 5,000 listings to 1,800,000 people. So really it makes sense to focus on those transactions that you know are going to close. And it, it, it's intentional on my part not to, not to do the 300 and under because you have short sales. I don't know why they call them a short sale. There's nothing short about it. I mean, it's a long, drawn-out process. And as my great friend Alexis Bolin says, you know, I choose to work with people who have money, who can buy and sell homes. So 
I never have one fall out. I never have a client that doesn't qualify. All of these things are intentional. Focus your efforts on those people and those areas that can bring you that business, that type of business. I want to go back for a minute. You've been doing this business for 34 years. Have you always focused on the luxury market or was that an evolution? And if so, why did that come about? No. Um, In fact, when I started in real estate, Austin didn't have a luxury market. I mean, we didn't have high-end homes. I mean, everything was pretty much on an even keel. I mean, there, there were small pockets of very large homes, but they were small pockets. And then the tech revolution came along and we had more and more demand for bigger and bigger houses. And that's actually happened nationally. The demand for larger and larger square footages has been an evolution. And as those homes were built, it just made sense that you had a number of agents who train themselves to sell in that arena. There's some really great training for agents that want to break into the luxury home market, and that is with Laurie Moremore at the Institute for Luxury Home Marketing. Laurie is a masterful teacher. She's an expert on uh, high-end sales and, and wealthy individuals, and her training is absolutely fantastic. I was very fortunate. Well, I've known Laurie for many, many years, but um, I was fortunate enough to take that training early, and uh, it's very good training. And so it just makes sense because you're going to benefit more. You're going to work fewer hours. You're going to make more money if you raise your average price. But these people expect you to know your numbers. So if you're going to work and focus in that arena, you have to know your numbers backwards and forwards. And those market reports really do help. That's why we started doing them, because we wanted to track our numbers in our city. We wanted to know where things were selling and how we could intentionally move up that chain. How long ago was it when you decided to start moving into the luxury market? You said you took the training early. How long ago are we talking? Probably 2004. And then in about 2005, we started tracking those numbers pretty intensely. And by 2006, we were doing the market reports and really tracking everything monthly by price band and and zip code. And it just made sense. And of course, that was when our market was really taken off. And it was, it was really fun. And we had also a lot of great new marketing stuff. I designed a, a company that, that built websites for luxury homes. And I ended up selling that company. It was great fun. So we were teaching agents how to build websites for just one property. That was just part of the experience that that level of seller wanted. They wanted you to be keen enough to build a website for their home, to design a high-end brochure, to actually tell the story of their home. Because every home has a story. And it's our job as real estate agents, and especially luxury home agents, to tell that story. 
When you say tell a story, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about how this home came about or the people that lived in it? It could be either. It could be either or both. Historical homes especially, you would want to tell the story of the people. But, for example, you would want to tell about the architect, tell about the neighborhood, maybe some special features that the homeowner planned for the for the property. You're just going to tell the story so that because a buyer buys lifestyle and the home sits in a neighborhood that sits in a community and you want to bring that home alive for the buyer so that they can actually see themselves living in that property. So whether it is the um, Italian party lights off the back deck or whether it is a home that is close to or on Lake Austin, you're going to just make that property come alive for the buyer by anticipating the questions that the buyer is going to have and building that site so that it tells the story of the home. Okay, so you've talked about this single property website. What is on that single property website? You mentioned that you have this data for the appraiser, a lot of statistics. What are you doing to to attract and excite the buyer? Do you have a lot of pictures or a lot of video or what's on the site? Well, the great thing about it is it's a framework to hang anything. So you could put the plans, the builder plans, the floor plan, the room sizes, like I said, the HOA documents, um, the pool plan, the landscape plan, links to the schools. I even put a contract completely filled out in my property websites so that if a buyer comes along and they want to make an offer on the property, they can do it. Or maybe you're a brand new agent. You don't know all the ins and outs of filling out a contract. Well, it's already there for you. All you have to do is have your buyer sign it. And the great thing about that is that I get those offers back the way I want to see them, with the right dates, with the right title company, with all the right uh, information in it. So I don't put a price and I don't put a closing date. But other than that, I pretty much have it filled out. And that really helps my sellers get the terms that they want for the sale of their home. Have you discovered whether pictures or video are better? Is it better to have 20 pictures or is it better to have one of those walkthrough tours? What in your experience is better? Well, that is changing as we speak, but I think a lot of professionally shot photography is absolutely key. And the high-end seller expects a professional to come and photograph their home. Real estate agents are not photographers and they don't do architectural photography. So it is very important that one of your team members be a professional photographer that knows how to shoot a house. And it makes all the difference in the world because they know the right lighting. They, My photographer even has a little handbook that we send to the seller before the photo shoot so that the seller knows how to prepare their home for that photo shoot. And these do not have to be expensive. You can find a really good professional photographer in your marketplace starting at around $100. Um, and 
you can take these still photographs and make a YouTube video. All you need to do is shoot a little maybe um, 15 second intro. You can do that from your iPhone or your iPad and a tripod and then put it all into iMovie and splice in those pictures so that you've got a really nice uh, representation of the house. YouTube is the number one search engine now, so it's going to be really important to do video. One of my goals this year was to set up a little studio where I could do webinars and, and uh, training videos, etc. And that's where we also do our presentations like that. So yes, video is important, but good quality video. And so if you, you're not going to do it yourself. You're not going to walk through the house with your little handheld camera and talk about the house. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having a professional photographer or a professional videographer come in and do that shoot for you. And yes, that should be in the, in the property website because that's going to make, uh, that organic material is going to make your site come up first. In the search engines, mm-hmm. you said you could either do the, the professional photographer, then take those photos and put them into a video, or have a video photographer. Do you make a distinction, for instance, is there a price point where you switch from the pictures to the, the video photographer? When do you decide to do which? I personally like still shots in a slideshow because I think that a buyer likes to study the pictures. And if you put it into a video, yes, they can stop and start it. But I personally like the still shot. So my preference is to do professional photography and put them into a slideshow where the buyer can click through the photography. By the way, that photography is your first showing of your listing. So if you have pictures in the internet that are not attractive, you're going to lose your buyer because that's your first showing. So it makes sense to have, you know, really good photography. I have a lot of fun with expired listings. And one of the, one of the greatest things is to see an expired listing come up in my market in an area that I really love to work in in a price range that I love to work in with crappy photography because that is my calling card. That's like hanging a stake out in front of me and dangling <laughs> it because I am all over that. I know that I can change the photography and maybe make some other adjustments and I can sell that property quickly. And I, I just have so much fun with the, the whole photography thing because – in fact, I think there's a website that's been, you know, bouncing around Facebook on bad listing photos, and some of them are absolutely hysterical. And then I've got a bunch of my own terrible listing photos that I've collected over the years and had a lot of fun with them in my webinars. So anyway, photography really does matter. There's one other thing I wanted to say. You asked me about a certain price point for photography. My feeling is every seller feels like their home is special and every seller 
that I work with gets professional photography. So I can control which listings I want to take, but every seller that I work with is going to get property website and they're going to get professional photography because I can sell a home much more quickly if I have those tools. Since it is your first showing, you want to have great photography out there regardless of the price range. And if the seller is going to come onto your website and look to see how you market your listings, having professional photography for all your listings is important. So it doesn't matter the price of the home. Every listing should have those two components, professional photography and a property website. Now to make sure that those photos come out well, you're going to want that seller to prepare the home. You mentioned you send them that handbook. Have you ever needed to send them out a, a stager, or do you offer a professional stager to help them with that? I always stage vacant listings, and I go through that process in our expired listing webinar. So if agents want to see a complete explanation of how we do that, they can do that at lauraduggan.com. But here's the process. Yes, I've got two people that I work with. I have an, an interior designer as part of my team. Remember that list of people that helps us get all the jobs done that we need to do. She knows exactly what I need, so I can tell her, I need for you to make an appointment with Mrs. Brown uh, this week and help her get her house ready for the market. And then Casey will go in and work with her on you know, maybe repainting a room, taking out furniture, et cetera, to get the property ready. And one of the ways that we get them to do that is we, we have um, a sheet of paper. It's a cardboard. And we cut the center out of the middle. So it's like a picture frame. And you ask the seller to hold that picture frame up in front of their face and look at that room. And they're going to see immediately that that room is stuffed full of stuff. And what the goal is, is to get it to look like a magazine photograph so that when you hold up that frame, you're just seeing important pieces. You're not seeing a lot of family stuff, pictures and trinkets, all kinds of extraneous stuff. So typically she'll help them remove all of those type things and then it's not me telling them it, it's a professional. Now on our vacant homes, vacant homes always seem to show better if they've got furniture in them. And so we have a company in town that will provide a showing house manager. And so what that entails is You've got a person that moves into the property with all of their furniture and acts as a, as a host or a hostess for your showings. They turn on lights. They've got music. They've got all the drapes open if, if the house has drapes. They've got everything in the shape to show that house that you want it to be in. Now, here's the way that works. The showing company, in our case it's Showcase Properties, Showcase Properties will hire a house manager, really their tenants that have fabulous furniture, and they give them a reduced rent in exchange for living in a fabulous home and paying the expenses. 
So the tenant or the house manager pays the electricity, they pay the gas bill, they pay to keep the pool clean, they pay to do the yard, and they pay a small amount over that to the showcase properties. And in exchange for that, they act as a showing agent for this property. And it's funny, but I've never had a house for more than 60 days that had a house manager in it that was there to help me with the showings. So it's a great way to treat a vacant property. That's wild. Yeah, and there, there, are, companies, there are companies like that all over the country. So it's a staging company, basically. We've got several of them in Austin, but it's a great way to get some help with showing your vacant listings. And it also it helps the seller because they're not paying the expenses of owning the home with keeping the utilities on and all that. And for insurance purposes, the house isn't vacant, so they're not paying a higher insurance premium because their home is vacant. So it's a win for everybody. The interior designer, do you send the interior designer into all the listings that you have? No, I don't because there are some homes that are ready for the market. Just because the sellers have already done all that, they know they've sold multiple homes, they know how to put a property together, and I might make a few minor suggestions, but for the most part, they're ready to go. I make that determination at the listing appointment, but my designer is always ready to get in there and get things done if if need be. In fact, recently, we had a a pretty high-profile client, and they had three kids, and both of them traveled all the time. The house was really in pretty poor condition. And so I asked the sellers to move out of the house and let us redo the house so that we could get the maximum amount of money for that listing. And we spent about $30,000 painting the interior, the exterior, refinishing the wood floors, and doing a lot of deferred maintenance that needed to be done on the property. We And we also uh, changed out the carpet and the bedrooms. And this house looked fabulous. It sold right away. And they were actually able to net about $300,000 more for the property because they let us spend thirty. And my designer picked the paint colors, picked the carpet, and supervised the work people. So I had to do nothing to get that home ready, except put all the right people together. Again, your team. When you bring in your interior designer, do you pay the fee for the interior designer or does the seller? I do. I pay the fee to the interior designer because it's part of my marketing budget. And, you know, we are so lucky now because we're not having to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on printed material like we used to and newspaper advertising and all that. So I have money in the budget to put the properties in the right condition and in showing and selling shape. So that's that's an important piece to getting a listing sold, I think. And it's also key for an expired listing because I can go in and I can put my finger immediately on what the problem was and then I just fix it and get it sold. And a lot, a lot of times that problem, the problem is condition. It's just not in the right condition or the photography is not right. 
And so I just bring my little team in. And most of the time, it's only a phone call because I've got carpenters, roofers, painters, plumbers, HVAC, electricians, handy people, contractors. And I just say, I make the call. I say, I need you to go over to X house and do the exterior uh, make ready. And so my little yard crew will get over there and they'll trim trees. They'll, you know, get all the dead wood out of the branches. They'll put compost and stuff in the flower beds and just make the house look really good on the exterior so that it's inviting to come. It's funny, but, you know, I even get a couple of listings a year where the key doesn't work in the lock. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You'd think that one of the things you do when you list a house is to make sure that people can get in it. Oh, I had a, a showing not too long ago, and I open the lockbox, and I take the key out, and there's a note inside the lockbox, and it says, Fussy Key. I went, really? I looked at my buyer, and I went, really? Fussy Key? Okay, so the listing agent can't afford to get a locksmith out there so that we can get in the house. And, you know, I'm not going to sit there and fight with a lock. You know, again, that's part of getting it in a show-ready shape. So if the key is fussy, I'm going to call a locksmith and get the locksmith to come out and fix the lock and give us keys. Yeah, that might cost 50 or $60, but what is the cost to a listing agent for a fussy key? <laughs> yeah, that buyer might walk <laughs> you know? away. Yeah. You've been going down kind of a list and kind of outlining it for us. What do you think are the major differences between working in the luxury market and working in an average price market? You know, I think the higher the price, the easier it is to market and sell a home. Whether you're working with a buyer or you're working with a listing, the process just seems easier. You have fewer hurdles to jump. So it made sense to me to focus on that that business. You've got highly intelligent people that are used to working with contracts and and letting you do the job that you were hired to do. And there's a lot less teaching that goes on at that higher end than in the lower end where you have to teach every single step. Now, that's not to say that I don't love first-time home buyers, and I, I, I really love to sell properties of all price ranges. To me, it's not about the price of the property. It's about the people. And I'd rather look at my job as taking care of people than trying to chase a particular price range. Because every every family has a number of price ranges within them. You might have mom and dad who are selling the big family house and moving down to a property that doesn't have a pool and it isn't two-story and that type thing. Or you might have their daughter Susie who has just graduated from college, is getting married and wants to have their first home. Or you might have grandma who uh, has been in a a little patio home, and it's time to pack her up and get her to assisted living. I love the people. It's just not about the property as much as looking at the business as solving problems for your clients. So whereas it's great 
to work in the high end, that's not the only focus. And if you if you try to do that, you're going to lose part of the beauty of the business, which is really helping people at different parts of their lives because real estate happens during a life change. Something is happening in a family that is causing them to buy or sell a home. You know, it's a marriage, it's the birth of a baby, it's the death of a family member, it's it's a wedding, it's a funeral. I mean, it, there are all kinds of situations that trigger a real estate event, unless, of course, you're working in an investment property, and that's totally different, and a whole different set of skills. But you just have to be sensitive to people's situations in their lives and help them make the transition that they're trying to make. And that's where I get the satisfaction. So whereas we can put up a big number for one year or whatever, that's really not my main focus. My focus is how many families are we going to help get to the next stage in their lives. And that's where I get all the gratification. If an agent wanted to move into the luxury market, how would they go about generating leads or business in that market? How would they find buyers and sellers in the luxury market? That's a great question. Okay, well, the number one thing you need to know, if you're going to change price ranges, and that's whether you're moving up or you're moving down or wherever you're moving, or maybe you're moving, maybe you are moving to a different location altogether, you have to know your numbers. You have to know the market statistics in the area that you want to work. You have to know how many homes there are on the market. You need to know how many sold last month. You need to know how long they stay on the market, what the average number of days is, the list to sales price ratio, because all of those are questions your buyer and your seller are going to ask. And so knowing your numbers is number one. The second thing you need to know is the inventory. You need to look at the properties that you want to sell, whether you're working with buyers or you're working with sellers. They're going to want to know that you know what those homes look like, what the, the best features are, and so you're going to want to look at every single thing on the market. It might take you, you know, several weeks to, to cover an area that you really want to work in. And the third thing I would do, I would hold open houses as much as you could in those areas. So maybe you don't have a listing, but maybe someone in your company has a listing that they would let you hold open. And I would just be a fanatic with open houses. I'd write notes to the people that came through my open houses. I love open houses. So when I'm holding a house open, and somebody walks through the door, I say, hi, how are you? And uh, they say, hi, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and try to make a left or a right quickly to get away from me. And I say, are you a buyer or a seller? And they look at me kind of surprised, and I laugh, and I say, because I find that a lot of times sellers who live in an area are trying to understand what the market is like in that area. And... Then we kind of start a conversation and I pull out my market report and I show them sort of what the market trends are. Whether they're a buyer or a seller, they're interested in that information. And then I ask if I could continue to send them the market report and everybody else is trying to send them listings. I'm trying to 
send them the market report, and I get email addresses from about half of them. And sometimes I won't get an email address, but they'll call me back later and say, you know, we really liked the way you were representing the property, or we really think that you understand the market here, so we would like for you to help us. And so open houses are a great way. And then once you get a listing in that area, you're going to invite people to come and look at your open house so that they can choose their neighbors. I always send a custom-made listed card to each of the neighbors around my listing. I do the same thing when when a property sells. So this card is very high-end. We do them in-house, and we do them on our, our printer in the office, and they look sort of like a watercolor rendering of the property. It's really a beautiful and uh, eye-catching way to capture someone's interest. And we feature the property website on that card. So whether it's just listed or just sold, they see the website and how we do our marketing. And that's the way I would attack a neighborhood. Just be visible there. The more visibility you have, the more signs you have up, the better. One of the things that we do when we get a listing in an area is that we do a pre-MLS marketing. And so what that would entail would be to put up a, a sign in front of the house and invite all the neighbors to come and preview your your listing so that they can help choose their neighbor. This is before the MLS. It's going to be two to three weeks that I want to have the sign in the yard before I put the property in the MLS, and I do that for a lot of reasons. And one of them is to create excitement about the property and to encourage multiple offers, actually. Because when a property hasn't gone in the MLS yet, there's a certain anxiety about it, uh, and it, it always works to the benefit of your seller. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Huh. You'd think that putting it out to the market before you put it in the MLS would have fewer buyers, and therefore you get a lower price. But you're saying you're creating this psychological issue of, of not knowing exactly what's going on. Absolutely. And so... After someone has seen the property, that is the time to text them back the property website address because I don't want them to have all the information before they see the listing. Otherwise, they won't have any opportunity or I won't have an opportunity to interact with them. So we just put up the sign. We don't put the website address on it. We don't put a QR code on it. We want the buyer not to find the house anywhere. We want them to have to interact with us. And that is the beauty of having a listing in that area because then people are talking about it. Well, why have, why can't I find it, et cetera, et cetera. And it really does create sort of an excitement about it. And, you know, listings are the absolute heart of the business and always have been. There's something I call listing math. 
that will teach you to focus on listings because, you know, the listings are the inventory in your store. So if you have no listings, you have no inventory. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We took a listing last March a year ago for six ninety five. And that was a $20,850 commission. And we got a sign call from this exact type of marketing from that house who purchased a home in another neighborhood for $475, which was a $14,250 commission. And then we got another sign buyer who bought another home for $790, which was a $23,700 commission. And they had a house to sell, so we also got a listing on that one. And that one sold for four fifty five, which was a thirteen thousand six fifty commission. And both of their parents were moving to Austin in the coming year. So they were in the million dollar price range and actually they haven't bought yet, but I anticipate that they will. And so that would be a thirty thousand dollar commission. And then the other one is going to buy a townhome probably in the four to five hundred thousand dollar range that would be a twelve thousand dollar commission so commissions to date from that one house that one pre-listing sign seventy two thousand four hundred and fifty and we have the potential of another forty two thousand coming so that is a marketing strategy that I would definitely embrace and it can be in any, any price range. And it's, like I said, what I call listing math. I mean, because when you've got signs up and you've got interest, you get buyer calls. And we just had another string that was amazing that recently happened, all in the million-dollar price range. So you get a little string of those going on, you're going to have a really great year. You said that one of the ways that Agents could break into the luxury market if they're not already there is get an open house. That that seems to be a great way to start. After they've gotten their knowledge base, go out there and, and run an open house and start meeting people. Are there any other ways that you recommend an agent do X, Y, or Z to break into the luxury home market? Absolutely. Uh, I would make friends with all of the high-end providers of services, luxury services. So if there is a gate guard, you're going to want to make friends with that gate guard. You want that gate guard to see you coming in and out of that subdivision. You might take them a little goodie. Uh, You're going to be best friends with that gate guard because they know who is coming and who's going. They know who's moving. You're going to want to contact high-end mover, luxury cars. I mean, any luxury service provider you should be networking with. You might even want to get a little mastermind group together um, and have lunch with some of these people once a month so you can trade referrals with each other. That might include an immigration attorney or an estate planning attorney because those people know others with high net worth. All kinds of people that would be service providers for those types of of people, Uh, accountants, private bankers, all those kinds of people, just the ones that deal with with high net worth individuals. And also, oh, here's a great one. 
read your business journal. We have the Austin Business Journal, and in the Austin Business Journal, there are news stories about everything that's happening in the business community in Austin. So we see who has just gotten venture capital. We see when a company is hiring employees. We see when a company is downsizing. We see when a company is moving to Austin or moving out of Austin. All of those business announcements are great sources of business. And for at the very beginning, I focused on uh, HR people, so human resources people in small companies, because they don't have all of the access that, say, a larger company would have. And so what we would do is we would put together this beautiful relocation handbook, and we would help them recruit their CEO, their CFO, their COO, and their director level employees. And then we would be a provider for, a trusted provider for them. And so, yes, look at your HR people among your community and look at companies who are bringing employees in and you can track that in your business journal or just through the internet on news releases, you could set up a Google search for companies that are hiring so that every time something is mentioned about that company or hiring in Austin, you get an alert and you can jump on that. So I would, I definitely pay attention to HR people. And in fact, in Austin, we have a human resources association and I'm sure every city of any size also has one. It's a division of the Employee Relocation Council, the ERC, and so that's a great source of business. Also, venture capitalists. Um, we've got a good bit of investment from venture capitalists in Austin, and you know they're bringing, they're setting up companies and helping uh, these companies. Home. Very good resource. I'm listening to this luxury market. You kind of start to touch on my next question. I don't want you to tell me percentages, but on the commission side, it sounded to me like you're receiving basically the same type of percentage of commission that you would receive at the other end of the market. And so that's why the commissions are getting so much larger. I I had heard before that sometimes those upper end commissions were a much smaller percentage than the average market, but it sounds to me like they're about the same. Could you shed some light for us on that? So all commissions are negotiable, and they are your company policy. And if your company policy is X percent, then that's what it is, and that's my company policy. So we don't negotiate our fees, and I've never felt we had to. And if we're asked to, we just say no and next question. You know, I mean, if you're providing a perceived level of service that is excellent, they're not going to ask you to negotiate your fee. And sometimes in, in, a, in a lower end property, I have that really ask more than I do at the higher end. But, you know, I, I've always felt that discount brokers attract discount buyers. Now, if you're after a discount buyer, you probably need to hire a discount broker, and that's not what we do. So there is a level of service for every price range. And 
what I'm talking about is not the price of the house, but every seller's willingness to pay your fee. And we don't call them commissions either. We call them professional fees. So that just that terminology, that change in terminology, I think is important. That's one of the things you'll learn in Laurie Moremore's class. She's got such great information. But caging it as a professional service fee makes all the difference. No one wants to pay a commission, but they're willing to pay a professional fee. If an agent were deciding to move into the luxury market, what mistakes should they avoid? I think I'd rather focus on what they should do instead of what they shouldn't do because You know, it's all the same stuff that you shouldn't do if you're going to focus on any market. You know, if you want to be successful, you need to get it. You need to know your numbers. You need to get out in the marketplace and look at the inventory so you know the product. And you should build a visibility in in and among the people that you're targeting. So in your business plan, if you want to raise your average sales price, then you're going to do prospecting activities that target the people that you want to work with. And we talked about some of those things earlier. The old-fashioned stuff, some of it works and some of it doesn't. So I would say you're going to farm, but you're going to do it in a much different way because you're not going to mail male, 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 male into a farm and costs a lot of money to do that. Uh, I think you should be very strategic about what you're doing. And anymore, raising your profile is important. So one of the things that you're going to want to do is have a nice professional online profile in LinkedIn so that people know who you are, can get a little taste of your personality. I love video for that and the webinars because I'm able to communicate information to people and post it so that I don't have to actually be there for them to understand my level of expertise, the level of service that they're going to receive. So I would say be visible. Be visible online. Be visible in your community. And and be visible among the people that you want to target. You're going to network with those people. I've heard you mention this idea of webinars, and and you mentioned it a couple times, so I'm really curious. What are you doing with webinars? Webinars are the greatest thing ever because you can communicate ideas and information and, again, the level of service that you provide and showcase your expertise by recording a webinar and posting it and then blogging about it, sending invitations out. Typically what we'll do is we'll we'll choose a topic. Say it is the new appraisal process. Remember when, you know, it was so hard to to get things to appraise because all the rules changed and we went to this third party uh, rules and all that. Well I decided that a great way to communicate that information would be to get an appraiser, one that's on my team, quote-unquote, these lists of professionals that I go to when I need help, and I, I got an appraiser to come in and into our office, and we went through a series of slides 
and we recorded a webinar. We invited people in our database to log on in a GoToMeeting, and they were able to see the slides and hear the presentation and then ask questions afterwards. Well, we recorded that, and we have it posted on our website at westfoston.com. There's a tab that says Webinars, and we have all of our webinars there. And so people, when they're searching, can look at the webinars and listen to the ones that apply to them. I've had people that I've never even met call me up and say, we're hiring you because we listen to your webinars and they're really good. And, and we like the way you work. We like the way you do things. And I, you know, I've never met them. They found them because they did a YouTube search and we've got them in YouTube as well as having them posted on our website. And then I will do a blog and do a little Google Plus posting. Um, the last one we did was called 10 Things That Every Buyer Should See Before Making an Offer. So if you're a new buyer into the Austin market, you might want to take a look at that. So it's great because not only is it out there prospecting for me, but it's a valuable resource when I meet a buyer or a potential buyer a lead, if you will, I just direct them to the buyer webinar. And it gives them a good feel for the experience that they're going to have in the buying process. It's almost better than the buyer orientation. So when you have a buyer orientation, they've already watched that 10 things and they're ready to go. So there's no selling because you've already sold them on you by providing this information. Now, one of the things that I've learned is that a webinar doesn't have to be very long. And our early ones are probably too long. This year, I'm going to cut back on the amount of information and give it in smaller little chunks. But regardless, you can't make a mistake. You just do them, you record them, and then you post them. Now, my 10 Things webinar was not a live webinar. So you see the, the beauty about doing a webinar is you don't even have to have an audience to get a lot of benefit from it because you can email it later, a link to the webinar, or you can post it on your website, or you can do it in a blog, or you can post it on Google+. So there's lots and lots of ways to use a webinar. And the way you do it, I do mine in PowerPoint, although I'm really trying to transition completely to Apple, but, but I'm still doing my PowerPoint presentation. And then I'd, I'd say may I, maybe I have 20 to 30 slides that I want to go through, but remember we're trying to cut back. So I take those slides and I get a great microphone. The one that we use is called a snowball, and it's the blue snowball, and it's just a little microphone that's a ball, a white ball, and it sits on my desk. And then I just click through the slides and I narrate what I want to say. And then Camtasia records it and then we produce it, post it on YouTube, and we can use it however we want. So webinars are a great way to convey information. Really do love them. And again, I did one on the expired listing program that I have and also the market reports. And it just gives you a great way to give information 
to people without having to do a live presentation or be there right in front of them. And people send their web, send the webinars to their friends, so that that's a good thing too. Yeah, it sounds like the the webinar is the format you're actually distributing through video because these are actually recorded and then distributed out as videos, but you're marketing them or, or mentioning them and talking about them as webinars. I think that's really interesting. Do you always have a guest speaker and a Q&A session, or are a lot of times it's just you talking and putting this down on a track? A lot of times it's just me talking, but... There is a big difference between the word video and the word webinar. If you're, if you're going to look at a webinar, you're anticipating learning something. Videos can be just for entertainment or anything. So by calling it a webinar or a workshop, which is also a popular term, then people are expecting to sit down with a paper and a pen and take some notes and really learn something. So you're setting them up for a learning experience, but you're also conveying a lot more than just information because they're able to see your personality. And the most important thing, whether you do video or you do webinars or you meet people in person, the main thing, the main focus for me is authenticity. Be who you are because that's what people want to know. They want to know who you are and what your skill set is and what experience they can expect to receive from you. And so being authentic is the key. And if you make a mistake or, you know, mess up in your webinar, that's fine. Nobody expects to be it to be perfect. They just want to know who you are and how you're going to how you're going to work with them. I recently had an experience where a buyer called from California. They were coming to Austin, wanted to buy a second home up on Lake Travis. And I was thrilled to death. And I said, how did you find me? And he said, I loved your 10 things webinar. I went, oh, really? That's great. So they came. I met him at the hotel. I walked in the door. He stands up, introduces his wife. He's got something in a file folder in his lap and we sit down after he introduces his wife and he pulls out my market report and I'm thinking, zing, zing. (laughs) So anyway, between the webinars and the market report, yeah, it, it was great. And they bought a really nice home in two days and left. So having those webinars posted, I had a job interview without even knowing it. Now, you mentioned you're trying to get them to be shorter. How long are your typical webinars now, and what time are you trying to get them down to? I started out having them be an hour, and that was just, it was great because some of the early topics, I think, commanded that amount of time, like the appraisal one certainly did. I mean, he had way enough information to fill an hour, and then we had lots of questions, and that was good. But I really think 30 minutes is ideal. You don't want them to be any more than 20 or 30 minutes. I have one where I go over the entire real estate contract, and and that, you know, took a little bit longer time. But if you can just take a short topic, uh, maybe you're just talking about the absorption rate in your market in a given neighborhood. It doesn't have to be five, ten minutes long. And post that, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of that. And the more topics you have, the better. You know, you can post those 
things with uh, in different categories with different search words, and uh, you'll get a lot of mileage out of any of those type things that you do. So let me make a distinction about working in your business and working on your business, because I think one of the one of the important tasks when you're trying to move from one price range to another is business planning, and the other is you have to work on your business as well as in your business. And to me, those things don't happen well on the same day. So I need a whole day of uninterrupted time, if possible, to do business planning, to do my strategic planning, and then to do things like recording the webinars and writing my little blogs and really working on my business from the outside. I have the absolute luxury of working with my wonderful husband, Brad, who is our COO. He does anything operations related. And so he will, he will grab my arm and he'll say, you know, we need a day where we work on the business because you're, you're working in the business, but I need you for a day so that we can go through some of these things. And so I think it really is important to uh, work on your business as well as in your business. Because if you don't, you're just going to be on that hamster wheel <laughs> and you're not going to have a chance to look at trends or see where the market's going. Or we have this great big whiteboard in our office and it has all of our closed transactions and what the price ranges were and where the business came from and what zip code the people moved from and what our commission dollars were, and that's one whiteboard, and then we have all of our pendings, and then we have all of our prospects, whether they're buyer leads or seller leads, and we have them categorized A, B, and C, and then we have under each name, we have what they're either going to buy or sell in the, the price range, say they're a million to two million, or maybe I have one that's a really good one, and we have them categorized A, B, and C, and then we have the dollar figure posted if all of those things were to close, what that amount is. So this is a year that I'm working really hard in my business. Last year I worked a lot on the business, and I took a lot of time off because I needed, uh, I needed a break. I also had a little health issue last year, so it gave me an opportunity to stop, stand back, look at all the amazing things that we had accomplished and prepare for a year where I was really going to work hard and had some real finite goals. So work on your business and work in your business and try to, you know, put a, a line in between the two so that you're not trying to do them both at the same time. You mentioned Brad. Let's talk about your team. Who is on your team right now? I have two agents. One, who's very much a partner and who's been with me for a good bit of time. And then I have another agent that we've just brought on who has fabulous staging skills. And so really it's the three of us and Brad who makes everything work that doesn't. That's his, I mean, he just makes everything work that doesn't. If I get frustrated with something, I hand it to Brad. And he just makes it all magically happen. We also have an admin person that works out of her home in San Antonio. 
So she's not even in the same city with us, but because we use computer programs like the Dropbox, we can very effectively work together. We also use a program called Jing, and Jing allows you to capture whatever's on your computer screen. So if something is bugging me and I can't fix it, I Jing it and I either send it to Brad or to Stacy and they get it they get it fixed and then I get I get unstuck. So it's really important to have someone in your life that unsticks you. Because for years, I pushed paper around my desk in a big circle. If something bothered me or I get stuck, I just set it up to the top of my desk. And then as things, more things got stuck, the pile would just kind of rotate around my desk. <laughs> and so I figured, yeah, if I'm ever going to make any progress, I need to have somebody who unsticks me. And I know a lot of us do have that situation where we get stuck with something and so we don't have time to do it. And so whatever time investment we've made in that already is time wasted. So get a virtual assistant or an IT person or, you know, college students make amazing resource people for getting you unstuck with whatever it is that you've got hung up on. So, yeah. That's, that's kind of the way our team flows. Gail and I work as partners. So that means that she takes care of clients that I can't for one reason or another service. Maybe it's more her expertise than mine. She also does commercial, which I don't do, and she's masterful at it. And we just have a really good time. Um, we meet, our team meets once a week. We meet at 8.30 on Tuesday mornings, and we talk about all of our transactions and if there are any sticking points coming up or if something didn't go well the previous week, what would we do to fix it? Uh, We talk about clients that are coming in the following week or the next few weeks. We talk about listings that we've seen, so our buyer needs. And between the three of us, we have a really good handle on everything on the market in all the areas because we really do a good job of of knowing our inventory. So that's kind of what we do. We mastermind on Tuesday mornings and Brad helps with any sticking problems. He also is our statistician. He does our market reports and they are so great. He pulls all the data. We do our market reports in-house. We pull our own data out of MLS because they're custom. We, we've looked at market reports that are commercially produced and we found that they either weren't accurate, believe it or not, because third-party sources don't have the access to the data that you have as an agent. So you're going to want to pull your own data and make your own reports. And we can even do a custom report for a particular client. So he helps with all that data and helps us analyze it and understand it and be able to use it in our blogs. And, you know, if some amazing statistic pops up, we talk about that. And that's just been very, very helpful to have have that second pair of eyes. Brad is very analytical. In the DISC, he is a C, and I'm a DI. And so, you know, you got to have that and he pulls in an FS to keep the team kind of happy. And uh, 
Gail is also very analytical. She's got a lot of S in her. So between the three, the four of us, we have the DISC covered. (laughs) You mentioned you have a virtual assistant in San Antonio, another city. Why did you hire someone in another city rather than hiring someone in your own city? How'd that come about? Well, we hired her in Austin. She was an engineering student at the University of Texas, and she moved to San Antonio to go to UT San Antonio and finish up her degree. And she was so good, and I was so distraught about losing her that I said, could we make this work with you being there and she being here? And she said, absolutely. And she's come twice in, I think, maybe the last nine months to our office. And we just find that through text messaging, email, the telephone, and the Dropbox, we've got it covered. I mean, she's fantastic. I really do love having people that have great talents on our team, but they don't have to be your employee. I mean, there there are wonderful, talented people all over the world. We have uh, someone who works on our website that's in India, and we love Raj. He's fantastic. We've never met him. We probably never will, but he's worked with us for probably five years, and we consider him to be a very important and integral part of our team, and I think when you have a need, Elance is a great way to find people for specific projects. Uh, and there, then there's a host of virtual assistants in real estate. Kim Hughes is one of them, who is in Mineo. I've met Kim once. She's great. I love real estate-specific virtual assistants because you don't have to train them in our business. And since they've worked with other agents, they know some of the top programs like Top Producer, which I don't use, by the way, but they do know those programs. There's not a big learning curve on your nickel. I want to ask about working with your husband. How long have you been working together? Well, let's see, five years before we married. (laughs) When Brad was uh, executive director of the Elementary Principals Association, you know, he he did a lot of uh, lobbying, and I saw him working with all these people and running their schools very much like businesses, and I quickly saw the relationship and the similarity of a school and a real estate office. They are so similar. The principal is like the broker, and it's his job or her job to mentor the teachers or the real estate agents to improve their skills and help them serve their constituencies, which are the students or our buyers and sellers. And so as opportunity presented itself, I told Brad, I said, you know, it would be fantastic if one day you could work with us because you would bring so much to our team. And besides that, he and I have a blast together. We've been married hmm, since 1981, so two years after I got into the real estate business, and we dated five years before that. So like Brad said, he raised me. (laughs) And... um, And we have fun with everything that we do, and working together has been the really greatest time in my life because I have the opportunity to work with someone that I love, somebody that I have a lot of fun with, 
and someone who has an amazing insight and perspective because he's not in our industry, he has amazing insight. And so it allows us to spend a lot of time together. And at first it was, it was a little bit difficult because he was used to having his own space and being the, being the, not the rainmaker, but the leader. And now we share that leadership and we had to kind of find our rhythm. You know, he, he is so supportive and such a cheerleader for all of us. And he'll do whatever it takes to make what needs to happen, happen. And it's just fun. And so, you know, we'll be out to dinner and we'll talk business. I mean, we just do. But we talk about it not from the the minutiae, but from the big picture and how much fun we're having. And we're, we're dreaming. We're doing the dreaming. That's where the dreaming comes in. So... I mean, our business is our lifestyle. It's a lifestyle and not a job. And he's very much a big part of that. And I love that because, you know, when you're in the real estate industry, when you're in the business, your your business has to take precedence sometimes. I mean, there were times when I was late for a birthday party or I couldn't pick my child up from school or, you know, and, and so the whole family has to be a part of your business. They are your biggest cheerleaders. I mean, I can't tell you how many transactions I've done over the years, ever since my children were in kindergarten, because they were out there telling everybody that mama sold houses and, and that she was the very best at it. I have on my, on my desk here a little thing that my youngest daughter drew when she was in first grade, and, and it says, my mom is my hero, and there's there's a picture of me that she drew, and there's a house right beside it. And, you know, you just got to love having your family be a part of it. And they shared in the rewards all the years that, that we've had our company. They took nice vacations. You know, they went and did just about everything they wanted to do. But they also, when December rolled around and everybody was going to, Christmas parties, they knew that we had to get our calendars out before we could enjoy the holidays. So everybody was there looking stamps and sealing envelopes and putting the business cards on the calendars. Now, we don't do the calendars anymore, but my kids have grown up too. So, you know, it's just the real estate business is a family affair and everybody should share in the work and share in the joy of the business. Make your family a part of your business and reward them for, for their help and you'll have a happy family. People are going to be sitting out there wondering, they're, they're listening to you talk about your business and there's going to be a question on the back of their mind. Let's get it out there. Are you profitable? I'm extremely profitable. One of the questions I think you had on your sheet was, you know, what is your level of profitability? And I looked at Brad and I said, gosh, what is our level of profitability? I know it's over 80%. Wow. We are so lean and targeted and focused. We do a budget every year. We do a business plan. And we leverage our tools. We look every single year at what our expenses are and what we could cut back on. And yet we're, we've done every year almost more than we did the year before. 
almost without exception. Last year was an exception because I intentionally took a lot of time off. We went to Africa and went to China and then did a three-week tour of the national parks up around Utah and, and just really stepped back and said, do we want to retire? Are we going to kick it into gear again and go full blast? And that's what we decided we would do, you know, is just kick it into gear and go full blast. But we don't have a lot of overhead. And I think it's really, really important to pay close attention to your overhead. Whether you're an agent that is working inside another company, you understand that every dollar that you pay to your company in commission split and fees is your overhead. So it's important to watch all of those numbers because you can be in a position where you're really not making any money. Another really important thing that we did, oh, I guess it was probably around 2006, all of us went through Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover program. And all of us are debt-free in our office. Nice. And so it's amazing how much money you have when you have no debt. And it's amazing how you spend your money when every dollar has a name on it. And it's amazing how much money you have and how differently you spend it when you don't use credit cards, but you have debit cards and you know that every time you swipe that little guy, the money is going to get sucked right out of your account immediately. You just spend and think differently. And it's so powerful. It gives you such power as a person, but also power in your business. And, you know, when I walk into a seller's house, 99% of the time, I'm the only one in the house that's debt-free. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it gives you a lot of power. And flexibility. And complete flexibility. Because, you know, the worst way to do the real estate business is when you have to do it. You cannot serve people when you are focused on the commission dollar. And that's how you look at it. You don't look at it as a professional fee. You look at it as a commission dollar because you're coming from scarcity instead of abundance. And, you know, sometimes you get into the middle of a, a relationship with a, a buyer and you know that it is not the right house for that buyer. And if you are counting on that commission dollar, you're not going to tell that buyer, you know what, this isn't the right house. Or this isn't the right time for you to buy. You need to do this, this, and this and see me in a year. So you just do your business differently. You know, when you, when you carry baggage or burdens and debt is so much that way. And so when you're strategic about your plan and you make a budget and you look at it every month and you see what's coming in and what's going out and every dollar has a name on it, then you're careful about your spending, but it allows you to do so much more. I probably don't spend more than $1,500 on any transaction that I do because everything is electronic. You get the best bang for your buck electronically. The websites are inexpensive. The photography is 
an expense. So it's the staging, generally. If there are repairs to be made, the seller pays for them. But, and occasionally, I'll do a printed brochure. But very rarely now do I even do the printed brochures. So the kind of market you're in will dictate that somewhat. But you shouldn't be spending over $1,500 on any piece of business. And the technology has allowed you to do that. That's allowed you to leverage your time. You're investing your time and you're getting a, a more imprint out there in the market from your time through these electronic mediums. And that's lowered your overall cost per transaction. That's pretty good. That plus the real estate tools that we have at our disposal now. And my example of the Dropbox is a prime example because in the old days, we all used to have to have servers in our office, which meant you had to buy the servers and you had to, you know, maintain them. And if the server goes down, you're messed up. Well, we use Dropbox. Dropbox is free. Dropbox allows you to organize all of your files, put them in the cloud so that they can be stored where you can have access to them anywhere in the world where you have an internet connection. So you can literally work from China, from Africa, or anywhere. Nobody has to even know where you are or your staff is there. So think of the expense that saves. That's just one example of a tool. Another one would be DocuSign over the fax machine. You know, we use DocuSign now to, to sign all of our documents. I was working yesterday with uh, the CEO of a major, major corporation, and they wanted to submit an offer on a property, and I said, great, I'll send it to you in DocuSign, and I heard a real, you know, pause on the other end of the phone, and I said, it's super easy, I'll walk you right through it. I said, you know, you just click the yellow tabs and you're done. And he called me back in about 15 minutes. He goes, man, that's amazing. And I said, yeah, and you're probably going to use it now for a lot more than just signing a real estate contract. So the time that it saves to have these tools, in addition to the advertising expenses, I mean, think we used to have to send something out into a farm eight times. We had the cost of the postage, the piece, the staff to put it together. And then we were just hoping that we were making an impression enough to get one or two pieces of business. That's all gone. It costs nothing to have your to put up your profile on Trulia and LinkedIn, to have a good Facebook business page. I mean, funny enough, these social media outlets, even for someone my age, is a remarkable gift. Remarkable. I am probably gonna do 10% of my growth this year from Facebook, from my personal page, not my business page, from my personal page, because I am able to stay in contact with my database on a real personal and fun level. I mean, I have, it, it's so fun to know when someone's baby took their first step and you moved them into their new house when they were pregnant. You know, it's just, you're just able to stay in touch with people and, and, be, and be a friend in the literal sense because your friends are always going to refer business to you if you stay in touch. And that's always been the realtor's challenge 
is staying in touch with those past clients while you're still working your business and still trying to meet a budget. Laura, you have a couple of other things that you do outside of real estate that, that interact with real estate. You've mentioned your market reports, and I think you even mentioned where people could see that. Where was that that they could go take a look at that? Market Report Builder, what was the website? It's marketreportbuilder.com. Okay. And if somebody goes there, what exactly would they see? We have a webinar that I recorded after presenting at Celebration and some of the Star Power events where we talked about our market reports. We had such a number of people that wanted more information about it and wanted access so that they could actually do their own market report. So I recorded a webinar on the market report, why we did them, kind of how they came about, how people get bombarded with so much information about real estate and very rarely is it accurate information. And so it's really important to control the information. And we do that through our market reports. We talk about how we use them with buyers, how we use them at listing appointments, fiat listings, price ride, how we use them to negotiate contracts, how we use them with RELO, how we use them at open houses, and even as a drip system for our past clients or those that were incubating. And so um, they could go to the marketreportbuilder.com, watch the webinar. It's 45 minutes, I'll have to warn you, but stay with it till the end. And then if you'd like access to it too, we have an offer that you could also join. So. That's fantastic. I know you have another resource, and we didn't get to really go in-depth today about it, but I think you have something uh, It's like on Expired Listings, uh, Expired Listing Academy. What is that? Expired Listing Academy is something very similar. I created my own expired listing program after uh, looking at all the stuff that was out there. I just decided that I could write my own better. And besides that, I wanted a program that would target higher-end listings. And so it needed to kind of look and feel like the high-end. And it's a really effective program because it is different. It's completely unique. And it does give the seller a preview of the way that you work. And that is the Expired Listing Academy came about from that. And that can be found at lauraduggan.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-D-U-G-G-A-N.com. And we have a webinar there as well. Oh, cool. Very good. Well, Laura, what drives you? What drives me? You know, fun. I love to have a good time, and my business is surrounded with fun. I love puzzles. I love challenges. I love working with people, and I have the opportunity to solve problems and to really help someone and get that gratification of knowing that I was really a central part of an important time in someone's life. And that's really what drives me. Brad and I enjoy working together. We we love to travel, and we're able to do all of that because of our business. And we just have a blast working together. So now that our kids are grown and gone, this is um, a fun time in our lives, and it's something that we can do together. And uh, it's it's a fun time. It's a fun time. Laura, why are you successful? You know, I think part of the reason is because I'm sincere. 
and I'm a really hard worker. So I'm very selective about the business that I take. I don't work with everyone, but when I do make a commitment, it's 110%. Like I said, it's a lifestyle and not a job. I'm a great communicator. I communicate well as a writer, part of that old English thing. And also, I stay in communication. And, I, you know, I see that some of the newer agents that are coming into the business aren't great communicators or they're choosing not to communicate. And that is really tough on a business. So I think being a great communicator and really having the dedication to do the work that needs to be done and not cut a corner to do the very best that you can for a client and make them a raving fan. I just had a a former client text me. She's a head coach at a major university, and she texted me, and she said, you're the best realtor on the planet. I'm thinking, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. But you know what? It took many months to do the job that I needed to do for that person. And there was such appreciation afterwards, it really made me made me so excited and happy that I got to be a part of that. If you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Find a mentor. Find someone that you can work with that will teach you the skills that you need to know to be successful. Because here's the thing, I love working as a mentor-mentee type relationship. And I've always had a partner, I call him a partner, but someone who's, you know, started in the business, maybe they're three to four years in, and bring them in to elevate their skill level, give me some relief and some some help. But the funny thing about that, when I started that whole process, is that I learned as much from them as they learned from me. So if you're a young agent and you're getting into the business, you have a skill set that is remarkable and is valuable. And so if you can find someone to partner with in the business who's very experienced and you can have a symbiotic relationship in that you have a lot to offer them, they have a lot to offer you. Now, the way I worked that at the, the beginning when I started doing that program is I would find someone who, again, was coming into the business or who'd been there, you know, several years, and I would give them a percentage of each one of my transactions. It was a training program. I would train them on the steps, every single step. We use checklists and systems. We're fanatics about that. So if you're coming into the business, you want to find a partner that's going to teach you each step of the buying and the selling process and what your role is going to be. And then you put it into a checklist so that you can replicate it over and over again. You're going to add things to that checklist every time you do a transaction. I'm still adding to my checklist with every transaction. There's always something that could be taken from the last transaction to improve the experience the next time or the system. And then there are some things that you're going to drop off. But at finding that experience level, also networking with agents who are experienced, who are doing the kind of business that you want to do, 
I am a voracious learner, and I listen to everything I can listen to about real estate and improving my business. I love to go to events where there are going to be other agents who are going to share and that I can share with. So I would heartily recommend that. Go to CRS classes. Learn as much as you can from the people who are doing the business that you want to do. You never quit learning, ever. The business is always changing, and there's always something new around the corner that you're going to need to implement to get that strategic, competitive advantage. Laura, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Absolutely. In fact, it's the way I train myself because if you remember to come full circle, Dad and I hired a broker, but the broker was really there as a figurehead. So the way we learned is we looked around the country to see who was doing the kind of business that we wanted to do, and then we replicated what they were doing, or maybe we would take it, read it, look at it, and do our own spin on it. So Absolutely. To me, it's the most valuable way to learn, learning from people who are actually doing the business that you want to do because they're in the field right now, and it's a, it's a fabulous network, fabulous network. Well, Laura, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we haven't addressed? I don't think so. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk with you and to share some of the ideas that we have in our office. And I really look forward to having the chance to meet some of the people that are listening to us today. Well, Laura, thank you for sharing your knowledge of luxury home sales. By monitoring the market, you spotted opportunities in the high end of your market. You successfully moved up market and increased your average sales price and commission. By tracking the market, you foresaw the Great Recession and adjusted your average price down before the fallout. Then you noticed the market changing again and increased your average sales price into the top 5% in your market. It's amazing how your market reports have allowed you to predict and shift with the trends in the market. I predict future adjustments and success. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who shifted markets and sold 155 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. 
That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.